They say poker is a hard way to make an easy living. This is the podcast about people that make poker work for them. This is Mid-Stakes Living. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Mid-Stakes Living Podcast brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com. As always, I'm Derek, joined by my co-host, Matt. How are you doing today, Matt? Very well, Derek. How are you doing? Doing great. Uh, just uh, watched the, uh, the the first, I guess, sort of the first episode of the World Series of Poker last night, although I guess it wasn't really the World Series of Poker. It was the National Championship or the Global Championship, I guess they call it. Do you guys get that in the UK? Uh, I don't believe we do. I, I know ESPN does exist over here, but it's kind of a different channel because it has a lot of soccer and stuff on it, so I don't think we get the same broadcast, but I'll probably find it online somewhere and check it out soon. Right on, right on. Well, if you do check it out, you're going to get to see a whole lot of uh, tonight's guest. Um, many people in the in the tournament poker edge community uh, will be familiar with him, but some of you uh, who aren't familiar are going to get to hear a really cool story. Uh, our guest today is Mr. Carlos Welch. How are you, Carlos? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, feeling good today. I uh, enjoyed a few cold beers last night while I was watching uh, your final table. Oh, wait, it wasn't your final table? It sure seems like it was. <laughs> so, so Matt might not even be as familiar with this, but uh, uh, talk a little bit about what, what went on last night on, on your national TV debut. Yeah, so last night was ESPN2's airing of the – WSOP Global Casino Championship, which was held at the um, um, Harris Cherokee in North Carolina, which is a a um, circus stop that um, I basically attend every one of them. Usually KB is there. He wasn't there this time. But um, they held, like, right in the middle of the circuit event, they held the Global Casino Championship, which used to be known as the National Championship. Mm -hmm. And that final table is filmed and broadcast live. So because I was aware of that, I felt it was only right for me to get in the crowd and try to get some um, TV, some TV time to get the um, Tournament Poker Edge merch out there on ESPN for free. (laughs) That's (laughs) uh, that's technical marketing. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that you probably got more TV time than 50% of that final table, like the people <laughs> playing at the final table. That's true. That's true because I want to say that they only start filming when it's down to six. So like three guys that made the final <laughs> table didn't get it on at all. And um, and even of the six that were on, I definitely um, – I would say it's probably more like 60, 60% of the table that got less airtime than me. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty spectacular. I got pretty. Ex- I kept pausing the television, just staring at our logo. It was great. <laughs> so for, yeah, so for so for people out there who uh, haven't watched that yet, or even if you did, go back and watch it again, and you'll see you'll see plenty of our guests uh, in the background. So that sounds awesome, and that's not your first experience of being a uh, pretty hardcore railbird, is it, Carlos? No, no, it's not. You've been doing a lot of railing at the World Series this summer, I heard. Yep, yep. Got a chance to rail several days of the um, main event um, with our buddy um, Chris Crusher. Crusher? I, I, I pronounce it Crusher. <laughs> I oh. know that's not even close to right, but that's the <laughs> name that I'm giving him. Works for me. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's always good to have a TPE guy go deep in, uh, go deep in something. And I'm sure, I think I said this at the time on Twitter, but uh, I'm sure that having someone like really being super supportive on the rail, like following you every step of the way, like that's an increase in ROI for, for anybody that, that gets that luxury. So you, you know, you should start charging for your rail services at some point, you know, <laughs> you know, I had a piece, I had a piece. So he, um, I got, I got more than fairly compensated for it. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's nice. You should start just turning up on the rail and saying, all right, give me 1% and I'll just follow you <laughs> the rest of this tournament. I'll just tweet about your chip stack and all this. Right. What was somewhat interesting was that you you actually wrote an article about uh, that experience, um, and you referred to it as poker caddying, uh, and I think that was on 2 Plus 2, correct? Yes, that was an article I wrote in 2 Plus 2 magazine. Um, that term was, I'm going to say, coined by my buddy Breyer, who's a uh, TPE member. Um, he um, went deep 
in the seniors event in Vegas, I think 2014. And I basically did that for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, um, he said, man, you're like a poker caddy. And that's just, <laughs> it kind of, it kind of stuck. And yeah, yeah. It's a so. good, good way of phrasing it. I think it, it accurately sums you got, up what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you got kind of some interesting feedback, actually. I thought, uh, I, I just kind of assumed because I thought it was one of the coolest things ever. But there were actually a few people who kind of took a negative, like had a negative view towards it, right? Yeah, um, but that's kind of like I've been writing articles for like I want to say this is three, four years now, and that's um, at least I'll say thirty percent of the articles you'll get like. I don't really want to call them trolls, but some of them can be kind of trolly. Um, Some of the um, feedback that you get on the articles. So, yeah, this is one where people were questioning the ethics of being a poker caddy, which basically means, you know, instead of just passively railing um, a buddy who's in a tournament, you're actually keeping your eyes and ears open for information that can help them to... uh, uh, perform better in the tournament and right. people were saying that oh that's unethical which is complete um garbage <laughs> I, yeah i i think that like most people who who kind of spent more than a few minutes thinking about it would probably recognize that you could make the same argument about something like having a friend who's also a good poker player and talking to them on a break about a hand like you could also say that's unethical because you're mm-hmm. getting help that's going to help you to play better. And of course, like you can't say that's not okay. You can't be like, nobody's allowed to talk to anybody on the break. Like you can't, it's just <laughs> it's ridiculous, it's absurd, you know? So like there's, yeah, I, I don't see the argument at all for preventing someone like yourself from just railing someone and, and uh, you know, helping them out like that, because who's, who's to say other players don't have family members doing that, you know, in the same way, you know, it's, I, I think it's kind of silly to object to that. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew Brokus, uh, I agree with him when he says that anything that's available to all the players is fair game. Yeah. I, so no, if, never. if, if no other people were allowed to have real birds, then I can see where it would be an ethical issue, issue, but everybody's allowed to have real birds that, and some people do have real birds who are just, aren't helping them out. They're just at a rail. Yeah. <laughs> and then right. other people don't have friends. And if, you're one of, <laughs> and if you're one of those people, then you need to join tournament poker edge. Cause that's how I, that's how I got poker friends to rail and to rail me. That is the best <laughs> nice. segue so, into like a TPE that. plug. I think we've had on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I might actually just run a commercial now. I guess I don't yeah. need to. <laughs> Very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. Um, like I said earlier, you know, some people will be familiar with you from, uh, other podcasts and things like that. But for those who aren't, let's get a little bit into your kind of your background. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of what you were doing before poker and how that transitioned into, uh, more of a full-time poker life, if you will. Okay. So if we want to go like, you know, to the very beginning, I got started with poker around 2003. Um, I'll say at the time, I I went to college in 99 and dropped out after like half a semester just because I went to Georgia Tech. I didn't really like it there and I didn't really fit in. And also there was some... um trouble back home with my my brother went to jail. And so I went back to like, kind of help my mom out. And, and I, and I was, I was kind of over it with school anyway, because I went to Georgia tech for, I know this is way back, way further back than you expected, but I, <laughs> no, this I, is good. I think this is a story that I haven't told before. Um, nice. I went to Georgia tech for computer science. And then when I got there, like, it just wasn't what I expected. Like, I can remember a four-hour chemistry class on Tuesday nights. And I'm thinking, like, why am I doing this chemistry? Why am I required to take this chemistry class when I'm here to learn about computers? Right. And, like, mm-hmm. I can remember the teacher saying, um, oh, so you take this this red 
this, no, this blue chemical and you mix it in with this green chemical, but be careful not to get any on your hand because it'll burn through to the bone. And I'm thinking, why am I, why am I doing this? <laughs> so I thought, I thought the required classes were stupid. Um, um, I'm originally from a small town south of Atlanta called Griffin. And so Georgia Tech is in Atlanta. So now I'm in the big city. I don't want to go to classes. And uh, I got like a, I had a bunch of scholarships coming out of high school and they paid for the first semester. And then they just like basically gave me the money for the difference. And I guess I was supposed to save that to pay for the second semester, but <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I skipped a lot of classes and just kind of like blew money around, you know, the big city for the first time, which was, which was stupid. Um, but I think part of that was I knew I couldn't really afford to, um, go beyond that second semester anyway, because you get a lot of scholarships coming out of high school, but if it's not a full ride, you got to kind of continue to earn scholarships going forward. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I didn't have enough for like the second, third and fourth year, whatever anyway. And I didn't want to be there and I needed to come back home. So I was like, screw it. I'm out. (laughs) So I left. And during that time I was thinking, okay, well, since I'm not going to do college, um, I need to like, you know, find some type of way to make a living. And like, you know, I know I didn't want like, you know, some regular nine to five job every day. So I was starting to get into like, you know, business, like, you know, how can I develop a small business? So basically that led me to a lot of like get rich quick schemes Mm -hmm. and like, you know, none of that ever worked. But I can remember doing like late night infomercial infomercials and I was watching the infomercial one night and after trying like several different programs, none of it ever worked. And I was watching something and it was like, oh, there's poker on late at night on TV. And I was like, okay, cool. Maybe this is a way to, you know, kind of, you know, start making money outside of a nine to five or, uh-huh. um, and, I was like, okay, I'll get into this. So I started watching. I was like, okay, okay, I think I can do this. And then I saw that you guys can't see me doing my air quotes right now. <laughs> but, but, but I saw that a guy named Chris Moneymaker made uh, money at this. And I was like, you know what, man? This is obviously another scam, just like the rest of this stuff. Man. <laughs> I was like, Moneymaker, yeah, right. And it turned out it was real. <laughs> you know, it turned out it was real. And so that's how I first got into poker. Um, and after I left Georgia Tech, it's funny, I got a job working for the University of Georgia, UGA, which is like polar opposites from Georgia Tech. They're like mortal enemies. So I left Tech and went to work for UGA, and I was doing computer programming. I had my own office and everything. So I would close the door to my office, and then I would play on like, um, what is it, um, party poker? Um, so I, I used to play on party poker like 2003, 2004 while I was at work. And that, that's basically how I first got started in poker and kind of just dabble with it for a couple of years. And um, after working as a computer programmer, I tried to get into real estate. That w- That was something that like the whole no money down thing that kind of the real estate bug got started with the get rich quick thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the no money down program didn't work for me, but real estate is obviously real. So I was like, you know, I'll actually sell like real estate as a real estate agent. So I left my job at UGA in order to do that in 2006 to 2007. And during that time, the, um, um, bottom fell out of the real estate um, market, like the bubble. It was just bad. It's like I just got into selling real estate at the worst possible time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the worst time. <laughs> yeah. And so that didn't work out for me. So now it's 2007 and I'm stuck and I, I'm i not making money selling real estate. I left my other job. And so now I'm just kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so I tried to go back into poker. Oh, when I started with poker, I started with sit and goes in 2003, mm-hmm. 2003 and four. And I was making pretty good money at sit and goes on the side. But by the time I decided to 
take um, poker more serious after the real estate thing. We had um, UIGA in 2006. So party poker left the market. So I tried on poker stars for a while. And right around this time, the sit and go started to kind of die out because there were so many regs. Mm-hmm. So now I'm starting from scratch in poker again. And I can't do this for a living if I'm starting from scratch. So I'm thinking like, man, I've got to get a job. Oh, oh let me let me back up. Um, <laughs> after I left Georgia Tech, after like a year of um, not being in college, I eventually went back and I graduated in 2005 with a degree in real estate and finance. And so I was like, okay, I, I got this degree. I'll do it. I'll find a job with this degree, but couldn't really get any jobs because you need experience and you mm-hmm. can't get experience because nobody will hire you because you don't have experience. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's like, I use that all the time these days, and it's like it's just the dumbest thing to me. It's like they're <laughs> deliberately trying to make sure you no one can ever get a job. It's so right. silly. It was like a horrible catch twenty two, and the only job I could get without experience using my degree was teaching. Now, mm-hmm. when I was um, in high school, I used to do math tutoring. So I was like, you know, I enjoy tutoring. So I'll just be a teacher is basically the same thing, I thought, which turned out not to be the case. Um, <laughs> tut- tutoring is way better than being a teacher. But I did teach for five years from 2007 to 2012. But by that time, I saved up, saved up enough money to where I could give poker another, um, you know, legitimate shot. And by that time, um, I had moved from sitting goes to uh, multi-table sitting goes like 18 mans, 45 mans, 180 mans. And of course, it's a completely different strategy. And so I needed to learn how to play those. And a friend of mine who I think was a guest on this show, um, Buffy Slayer, mm-hmm. uh, recommend, yeah. recommended me to try out Tournament Bridge. To learn, you know, multi-tournament, multi-table tournament strategy. So I did that and started to get better. And I realized that, you know, I, I'm going to get this thing another shot. So in 2012, I quit my job as a teacher and I went to Vegas and met up with the Tournament Poker Edge guys that next year, I believe. I want to say, yeah, in 2013 is when I first uh, met those guys, and you know, after, you know, using the strategies I learned at the website and after meeting those guys, I was like, yeah, this is definitely a thing I want to do. And basically just been um, been rolling ever since. Wow. That's crazy. I have a story. Uh, yeah. Did, did you – so when you, were, when you first started out playing sit and goes, you said you were making pretty good money. Were you, do you think you were making pretty good money because the games were just so bad that pretty much anyone could win? Or do you think you actually – pretty good at sit and goes at that time, if that makes any sense. Because it didn't sound like you had done a whole lot of strategy studying on sit and goes. You just kind of got good at it. No, actually, it was a little bit of both. Like, when I first first got started, like, the first time I ever played for real money, it was cash games online. And I did basically what everybody else did, which is deposited the minimum, which was $50. And I sat with the whole thing. And lost it in about two hands <laughs> and just redeposited and redeposit and did that maybe took like two or three times to where I realized that, okay, these cash games are stupid. I'm losing my money too fast. And then I, I, I remember saying to myself, let me try these sit and goes because if I play those, I'll lose like slower. You know, I'll get, <laughs> I'll get more play for my $50. Like I would lose the $50 in the cash game in one hand. But, right. you know, I got smart and deposit $50 and play the $50 sit and go. <laughs> and I lost that in like 30 hands. So I was, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, still obviously horrible bankroll management and, and not knowing what I'm doing, like you said. And I want to say, I think I went to either get a book to learn how to play um, either I, I think like Barnes and Noble. See, I've been cheap my whole life. Like the people that do know me, they know about the nittiness in me. And when I first <laughs> learned about Barnes and Noble, I thought it was like the greatest thing ever because you can just go in there and just read books without paying for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went to a Barnes and Noble and I found like a poker book and I read it and I noticed on the back the two plus two website. Mm-hmm. And so I started, um, 
reading the post in two plus two in the single table tournament forum. And basically that's where I learned the strategy to beat sit and go. So um, I started doing a lot of studying on two plus two. And I'll say that um, to answer your question, I was competent using like a very simple strategy that the guys in that forum taught. Um, but also the other people who were not studying were just like, uh, way worse than me. So there's mm-hmm. a lot about poker I didn't understand, but the little bit that I did know was enough to do well in the games. I was probably making like a thousand dollars a month, uh, from sitting goals, which was decent, you know, coming from where I came from, um, uh, for a little part-time thing that I felt like I was, you know, rich, you know, with mm-hmm. a thousand dollars a month. So, uh, I was happy with that, but. Um, once I try to do it full time, I needed to, um, make more than that, obviously. Right. Uh huh. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's interesting to, uh, to hear you talk about like books being one of those, those sources of, uh, of poker learning in the early days. Do you remember what that, that book specifically was? Cause there was a ton of books. Everyone started reading around that kind of time. I think like 2006 through 2009, like everyone was diving into poker books. Yeah. I got started with. Um, the Harrington books and okay. also, um, um, Theory of Poker. Um, and Slansky, is that? Yeah. And I want to say the one that was a small stakes hold'em where, um, Skolansky and Ed Miller, like I just okay. had, I basically just read all the books that they had at Barnes and Noble. Um, mm-hmm. all the two plus two books, I should say. Um, and eventually, um, Colin Moshman came out with um, the Sit and Go book, so I read that one. And um, Kill Everyone was another one. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, basically anything. Once I decided on Sit and Goes as my main format, anything that was geared towards beating Sit and Goes that was like highly recommended, I read. Cool. So you 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 really dived in like a lot of people around that time, yeah. 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 Cool. And how did that? That's very interesting. Yeah, how did that? Um, how did that sort of diving into becoming? Uh, I guess. A, I guess a full time poker player around that sort of 2012, 2013 era when you when you quit teaching. How mm-hmm. did you find that transition? Was it a was it a smooth one or was it a bit rocky? Um, it was rocky in that I didn't have a ton of success at the time, but. Uh-huh like in terms of like results, but it was smooth in terms of like I had enough of a um, bankroll saved up that I I was never in jeopardy in my life role. And Mm -hmm. also in 2012, um, I'll say in 2000, from 2009, when I was teaching, I bought a house. So, I had this um, house and my mortgage was like, just the mortgage alone was like a thousand and expenses on top of that was like another thousand. So as a teacher, I was probably bringing home about 3000 a month and I was Mm -hmm. spending about, about 2000 of it on house and just household expenses. And so once I decided to get into poker, I left the house so that, dramatically cut my expenses and I moved into a hotel. So I went from paying like $2,000 a month to about $800 a month for basically um, the same utilities and expenses. Mm -hmm. So even though I wasn't having a ton of success and results in poker, because I had cut my expenses so drastically, it wasn't as rocky of um, uh, a start as it could have been. Right, I see, and this is this is a good segue as well because it, it gives us a chance to talk about the uh, the kind of adventure that you I think have been on for for a while now in terms of living out of hotels and living in a in a more nomadic kind of a way. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about how that came about, the decision to to go for that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, so the the, the idea of that first started in two thousand eleven. So. Um, I was playing the sit and goes and then around 2010 um, is when I, I played a um, tournament, one of the um, 
what do you call it? VPP or something? Like there was some mm-hmm. like frequent player points program on um PokerStars where I was playing I was I was like twenty one table and sitting goes and I was racking up so many of the uh, points and you would also get invited to like monthly tournaments that were like, you know, free to enter because of the VIP tournaments. Yeah. So I put I played one of those not knowing what I was doing and somehow ended up getting like third for like three thousand, which was a uh-huh. lot more than I'd ever made in one day at Sitting Goes. Mm-hmm. And Buffy Slayer reviewed that hand history for me. And when he realized I didn't know what the hell I was doing, that's when he <laughs> recommended me <laughs> to TVE. My, my favorite right. story from those from that review is he pointed to me, he, he pointed to a hand and said, this is a spot for a good three bet. Like, why, why didn't you three bet here? And I, and I was like, what's a three bet? I had never heard, <laughs> I never heard that term before. And he was like, when he described that, I meant, I, I said, uh, you mean a re-raise? <laughs> and, uh, he was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, why did you do it? I was like, cause I didn't have kings or aces. Duh. <laughs> that shows you how little I knew at that time, which is why I needed to get the TPE so desperately. And uh-huh. that was um, 2010. And I was a member uh, learning like 180 mans till 2011. And um, Black Friday hit. And so mm-hmm. when Black Friday hit, I thought poker was over. And I foolishly canceled my TPE membership at the time. And. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to um um Jamaica. I went to Jamaica wow. to try to get my full tilt money cuz everybody you if you remember at this time everybody was like moving out of the country, people were going to Canada. I was like I'm not going to Canada. It's too, too cold up there. <laughs> and I was like I'm not going to Mexico or Thailand cuz I only speak English and like Jamaica made perfect sense to me. Uh-huh. And so so I went to Jamaica to try to get my full tilt money and that didn't work out in turn. It worked out in the sense that they cut a check and they sold me that, you know, the checks in the mail. Um, and then in two days after that, they went bankrupt or whatever the process that, um, whatever happened with them, um, the check never came. Oh. So, uh, while I, I w- because I'm a teacher, I spent the summer of 2011 in Jamaica setting up a residence down there in order to try to get the full tilt thing worked out. And the whole time I was in Jamaica, I was still paying my mortgage back in the U.S. So not only did I have to pay rent while I lived in Jamaica for the summer, I also had to pay for an empty house back home. Oof. So when I came back, I was like, okay, this is stupid. If I'm going to be doing all this traveling for poker, I can't have this house. So I got rid of the house and I moved into like an extended stay hotel where you pay about a week. Mm-hmm. And I did that for three years from 2012 to 2015. And then in 2015, when I came back from Vegas, I was headed back to the hotel. And, you know, over those three years, like the prices that started to creep up for the hotel. And I just realized like, man, everything I'm doing in this hotel room, I can do in a van. And then that that's when, like, the ideas just kind of sparked in my head. Like, man, I should just buy a van and live in that. <laughs> so around July of 2015, last year, that's what I did. I bought a van, and I just started living in it. And I didn't go back to the hotel. And, um, yeah, so that's when the Knitmobile was born. That's what I like to call the van. <laughs> and... Yeah, so that's, that answers your question about how I, you know, went from, you know, owning this house when I was teaching mm-hmm. to this mobile lifestyle as a poker player in the van. Yeah, absolutely. Had you, um, like, before the idea of moving into a van sort of popped into your head, had you, like, seen, because I know you got into, like, like, YouTube videos and stuff about how to set up a van to live in and how to convert things and do certain things. Like, had you done any of that research before then, or were you just, like, well, shit, I can put the seats down in the van and sleep. That's easy. <laughs> no, it, it was like, I can remember maybe like a year or two prior, there was this guy, I'm not going to remember his last name, but there was an article in like maybe US News or some online magazine thing. This guy, his first name is Glenn. 
can't remember his last name, but he was a musician who like the headline of the article was like, guy lives on $11,000 a year or something. So, you know, being the net that I am, that got my attention and he did it by living in a van. He lived in a van and he used solar panels for electricity. And basically he was a musician who made maybe, I think like $35,000 a year and he mm-hmm. lived off 11 and he just invested the rest. And I was like, wow. man, that, that, is, that is like so smart. And I was in my mind, I'm thinking like, you know, I'm going to do that one day. And this was probably like a year or two prior to me actually doing it. But mm-hmm. the seed was planted at that time. And once I decided I was going to do it, that's when I started researching on um, YouTube um, to kind of get the logistics down. Right. Yeah. And this is interesting. It's interesting for me to hear a lot of this because um, I've been I think we, we had a bit of a conversation about this in Vegas this summer, if I remember rightly. And I've actually been doing something moderately similar to what you've been doing in that my, my wife's from the States, I'm from the UK, and neither of us have a long term visa. So we we move around a lot. We've spent time in the US, Canada, uh, the UK. We're probably going to be spending some time around Europe in like a few months time. So I've had a little taste of this lifestyle and I got to say, I have a ton of respect for you being able to carry it off in a long-term basis because it gets, it gets tricky. There's a lot of logistical concerns, you know? So in a weird way, this is maybe an odd direction to take this conversation, but I'm really interested in the, like the day-to-day fundamentals of, of like, let's say living, you, you lived in an extended stay hotel. So like in, in that respect, what did you, what was your routine like? You know, what was your, what was, how did you cook? Did you have a kitchen? Like all of that stuff. Like I'm, I'm really intrigued about the day to day. Well, the extended stay hotels do have um, a kitchen. So okay. you get, so there's like, you know, a refrigerator, there's mm-hmm. like a stovetop. Um, usually okay. they don't, usually don't, they don't have ovens, but you know, right. the, type, mm-hmm. the type of the cooking I do, the microwave is fine. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to yeah. be in here whipping up casseroles and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, the logistics as far as cooking and the extended stay was, um, pretty easy. Um, uh-huh. in the van, um, I don't do much cooking uh, <laughs> I, I saw people like there's people on youtube who have rigged up ways to do it but again i'm not that i try to keep i like things to be easy and so uh-huh. if i could just uh-huh. eat something that doesn't require cooking like fruit mm-hmm. or like beans or something like that then i'd rather do that than you know trying to get some type of like like there's this little it's like a can where they like um, somehow create like a little open flame out of a can and they cook on that thing. I'm not, mm-hmm. this is too complicated for me. And it's not, <laughs> it's not, I don't think it's necessary. If you, if you're uh-huh. the type of person that are interested in, to, in all that stuff, then yeah. But for me, it's not necessary for me to uh, get that complicated with it. The one, the one cooking thing that I do have that I love is something called an air fryer. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like a mic. The best way I can describe it is like a microwave that fries things without oil. Wow. And so um, that I use um, quite frequently and it's simple because mm-hmm. like I said, it's just like a microwave. You just put the stuff in there, you, know, you fire it up and then that's fine. But even that I don't do in a van. I only use that when I'm in a hotel or at somebody's uh-huh. house. Okay. Fair enough. So you, you sort of developed your own kind of processes for managing that sort of stuff. And, and I know um, I've seen you tweet before about uh, your processes in the, in the van and how you're like, like showering at gyms and things like, I guess, did it take you a while to get used to, to some of that day to day stuff? Or was it like, did it all seem fairly clear from the, from the outset? It, it was pretty clear and it was like pretty easy. Like at no point did I feel like deprived, like, as far mm-hmm. as like bathroom, it was um, Planet Fitness. I got a membership for like twenty bucks a month, which gives mm-hmm. me access to any Planet Fitness in any city uh, around the world. And so I was able to do showers there and bathroom, or just especially in towns with casinos. Like there's tons of like public restrooms that are like fairly clean compared to like, you know, gas stations. Right. <laughs> you know, so so like man, 
I have no qualms about uh, using gym showers or public restrooms because, like I said, when I lived in extended stays, like the restrooms at some of these casinos are nicer than the restrooms at some of these extended stays. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't it didn't take much getting used to at all for me. Okay, that's cool. It, it's it's certainly an admirable degree of flexibility because I think a lot of people would struggle with that. Like a lot of people get used to home comforts, you know, and they they accumulate a lot of stuff in the house and then they they don't want to let go of that, you know. So the uh, I guess the minimalist approach is uh is something that's that's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you about my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I bought a house in 2012, 2009, stayed there to 2012 and it's like four bedrooms, three baths, it's like two stories. Uh-huh. And, you know, a decent neighborhood um, in my in Griffin, where I'm from. At the time when I bought the house, I had a um, long term girlfriend living with me and we broke up around 2011. And mm-hmm. when she left, I turned that thing into the ultimate bachelor pad. Like, <laughs> like downstairs, like you, I was even even when I had this big house, it was still minimalist like downstairs mm-hmm. was imagine like four rooms kind of like in a a square or a circle but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how to describe this but there's the dining room and next to it like parallel to it is the living room and those two rooms are connected by the kitchen which is kind of small um and then the other areas, I guess, just like the foyer, whatever you call that. Uh-huh. And there's like a sofa and a TV was in the living room. And the dining room had a dining room table and like some chairs. That was all that was down there. When uh-huh. she left, I got rid of the table and the chairs. And I just pushed the kitchen, the, the sofa up against the wall. So I basically had an entire empty circle downstairs. And I just used mm-hmm. to like run laps in there. Like I was trying to lose weight at the time. So I was using mm-hmm. my whole downstairs. I turned it into like a, 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 uh, a running track. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. And so, and, and I had weights, I had like, you know, weights, iron weights in the, in the living room. Um, it was like, the ultimate bachelor pad. So at no point was I ever the type of person that would have like the big wooden entertainment center and, you know, three or four different like um, pieces of expensive furniture. Even when I had the house, it was basically just a minimalist thing. Uh huh. That's interesting. That's, that's, that's kind of awesome. Actually. (laughs) I I think a lot of people, uh, I mean, certainly myself, having traveled a lot recently, I'm starting to recognize how much stuff in my house I have that I never, ever make any use of whatsoever. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to just get rid of things and have less attachments, you know? Yeah. Uh, along those lines is the headboard on a bed. Uh-huh. What is the purpose of that? <laughs> <laughs> it's just another big piece of furniture and expensive that you have to lug around when you're moving a lot. I never understood the purpose of a headboard. So like, <laughs> there, there's so many like, I guess, creature comforts that we're just mm-hmm. used to by tradition. And a lot of that stuff is not useful at all or mm-hmm. is so um, minimally useful that I think we'll be a lot better if we just got, got rid of all that stuff. Right. Is there anything that you miss? Like, is there the one thing where you like, you wake up at two in the morning in your van and go, man, I really wish I had that right now. <laughs> Let's see. Um, not really. There, there's not, there's not much I can think of from when I was in my house that like, even in my house, like I basically spent all my time in the bedroom, uh, playing poker on the computer. And so I was paying to like heat and cool a lot of space that I wasn't using. I'm living in a four bedroom house and I'm only using the one room. And so, yeah, to answer your question, no, there's not much um, I miss. Uh-huh. Very cool. It seems like you're very much at peace with the lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like I'm um, depriving myself at all. 
I, I, in fact, the fewer things I have, the more I enjoy life. Like the freedom, mm-hmm. the freedom to me is more um, valuable than the the things. Right. Mm-hmm. And to to kind of transition from that into to poker, sort of. Uh, I mean, talk a little bit about how you're able to essentially be a semi-professional or professional poker player from a van. Like, I mean, you know, he's talked about the air fryer and the bathroom situations like that, but how are you like powering a computer? How are you, you know, all okay. that good stuff. So uh, connecting to the internet. <laughs> okay. So initially um, for electricity, when I was reading the YouTube videos, they would suggest buy like, mar- like deep cycle marine batteries. And so, I bought several of those batteries and I connected them to this thing. Some people call it an inverter. Some people call it a converter. But basically, you just connect the um, electrical ends to the battery and it provides like an outlet for you to plug in like household items. So Mm -hmm. I had that and that's how I was able to power my laptop and a fan and, you know, basically all the other small appliances I needed. And for Internet. Um, I basically have a Verizon cell phone that I've had since I was 16. Well, not the actual cell phone. I've had the plan <laughs> since so I keep my phones for a long time, but not, not, not 20 years. <laughs> uh, but, but I've had this plan for over 20 years now and, uh, for 20 years now. And when the plan first came out, uh, of course, there wasn't all this, um, technology around and like people downloading music and, and movies and everything. So an unlimited data plan came standard. Mm -hmm. And since that time, Verizon realized that, you know, these unlimited data plans are killing us. So they did away with that. But because, um, uh, uh, too cheap to, um, get a new phone when they, like they always offer me like new phones for free. If I sign another contract, Mm-hmm. But I've never signed another contract since my first one. And so <laughs> I'm grandfathered in on the unlimited data plan. And I'm able to use that unlimited data plan to turn my phone into a hotspot, which is where I get internet from. Wow. That's, that's so great. Kind of, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, every time I go to the AT&T store to look at phones, they try really, really hard to get me to switch my plan because I'm still on an unlimited data plan too, and I just refuse. Yeah, yeah, I remember one time they tried to get you. <laughs> but, yeah, but they, uh, and they they did for about 24 hours. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, this is what I said I was not going to do. <laughs> right. yeah. The uh, the way the way I look at those situations is whenever somebody's trying that hard to get you to like buy something or invest in something or, or switch a plan of some kind, like. If the harder they try, the more likely it is that it just benefits them way more than it benefits you. Because yeah. if they were trying, if it benefited you that much, they wouldn't be trying that hard. They'd be trying to discourage you, you know? So it's right. like, it's one of those things where you immediately get suspicious as soon as anyone tries that hard to sell you something. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I just get like a three, four year old phone um, off of like eBay or something. And whenever I need a new phone and I'll just connect that to my account, but they, mm-hmm. they have this thing, what they call it new every two, every two years you get a new phone, but then yeah. you have to sign a new contract that locks you in for another two, three years. I just never fall for that. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know they were dealing with a poker player. That's their problem. They did not. <laughs> yeah. Always looking for that extra value. Right. That's very cool. So, um, I mean, let's talk a little bit about like what you're kind of doing now in terms of uh, playing poker. I mean, obviously we 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 had Matt Berkey on before and it was sort of like high stakes uh living podcast. Yeah. This is probably this is sort of the true mid stakes living this podcast. This is low stakes yeah. living. <laughs> <laughs> this is low stakes living for sure. Um 90% of my poker play is low stakes. So like if I'm playing online, which is the majority of my play, it's on a site like Bavada slash ignition with like mm-hmm. I'll say average um, buy in around $20, 20 to $30. So uh-huh. I rarely play anything over 50 bucks. Um, so, um, and a lot of it is like $10, $10 tournaments or $20 tournaments. Um, so yeah, I think that, that 
for sure qualifies as um, low stakes living. And when I have played bigger, it's of course been live. And it's funny that you bring up uh, Matt Berkey and I want to give him a shout out because Matt Berkey bought a massive piece of my main event action this year. And he, along with several others, uh, allowed me to, you know, venture into the, the high stakes living for like, you know, a day or two <laughs> in the summer, but there's no way I would want to play that high on a uh, regular basis. So yeah, just small online stuff, um, like 50 bucks and below. And as far as live, it's usually around like 300 bucks or below, even, um, like a hundred ABI, maybe, um, mm-hmm. 150 if I'm guessing for live tournaments, but yeah, um, I'm definitely below mistakes for sure. Uh huh. That's interesting that you, uh, you know, you talk about not really having the aspirations to play that high. Cause I think one of the, the things that stood out for me from the conversations that we had over the summer is we talked a little bit about, uh, some of the guys out there that are like at the highest stakes crushing MTTs. I think we talked about fatal halts a little bit. And, yep. uh, I remember one of the things that you said that stuck with me was the idea that, um, you know, you, you believe that you, if you were to put in the effort, you'd be able to get to the point of being able to play that high, but you're just not willing to put in that effort because it doesn't feel like a worthwhile exercise to you. And that really struck me as a really balanced mentality because a lot of people, once they get into poker, they, they kind of fall into this mentality where they think that the only thing that matters is getting better and improving your EV and, and the, anything that's done just for the simple sake of, I enjoy this more than I enjoy, you know, working on my poker game or something is, is useless, is invalid. So I, I have a ton of respect for the fact that you're able to be like, I could be better than I am, or I could be playing higher, but I don't want to. So, so how did you come around to that mentality? Was there ever any, like, did you ever have that like real strong motivation that some people have to like reach the high stakes and be crushing everybody? Or was it always like a, a contentment with, just being able to make that living and, and, and have the freedom that you have. I have a strong motivation to be happy. Uh-huh. And when I think I heard you say that people were saying that, oh, there's something I'd rather be doing that's more enjoyable to me, but mm-hmm. it's invalid because it's not helping me improve my poker game. Like right. I can't, I can't think of anything more invalid, more valid than doing the things that you enjoy. Absolutely. Yeah. And so for me, it was always like when I think about poker, I don't enjoy playing poker, especially tournaments for the sake of playing tournaments. I like to make final tables and I like to win. And that's more likely to happen if I'm playing low stakes against bad players. And so that's where my motivation comes from. Like beating up fish makes me happy. Losing to Fatal Holtz <laughs> does not make me happy. <laughs> so I never, I never want to play with him. Uh, yeah. I think we, uh, I think one of the things you said as well about game selection was you said, you said something like, uh, if, if I see a player that I recognize in a tournament, I'm never going to play that tournament again or something like that. And I think that's a really cool mentality. It's like just only play against fish. Yeah. It's like when, um, like most people, like they walk into a tournament. And they play at stakes where basically every table they sit at, they're going to see somebody that they know. And that's mm-hmm. like normal for them. For me, if I sit at a table, if I recognize anybody, it's automatically a bad table. Even if I know I'm better than that person, because most of the people that I recognize by face and name are at least somewhat competent. I want to play against people who have no clue what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I, I won't say I... I'm not saying I won't play that tournament again. I'm just saying that, oh, it's a bad table because I kind of uh-huh. know this guy's face a little bit. Uh, yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. a different um, standard than most players have. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people have this real, like, I, I guess a lot of it's wrapped up in ego and things like that. But a lot of people have this real competitive edge where it's like they see somebody that they recognize or they see somebody that they they know is another reg. And immediately they go into this mode where it's like, oh, I have to I have to try as much as I can to beat this guy. Like, I have to... You know, I have to mix it up with him. I have to battle him. I have to win. It's like, it just doesn't seem like, it seems totally counterproductive to me to to get involved in huge battles against guys you know are decent and, like, forget about the guys you know suck. You know, it's like, it, it doesn't make any sense. So it's really cool to hear that mentality. I look at. I remember my, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I remember my very first World Series of Poker tournament 
I was so excited because um, Alex Jacob was two to my left, and uh-huh. I, I always remember like, and he was really big at that time. Like he had, he was winning all kinds of stuff. He was a full tilt pro, all this stuff. Uh-huh. And so I was all stoked about it because I was just like a poker fan. And then 30 minutes later, I was like, why was I stoked with this guy? <laughs> it's two to my left. He's like destroying me every time I try to play a pot. He just owns me. Yeah. And that's when I, I think that's when I first started to realize exactly what Carlos is saying. Yeah. Like, you don't want that. <laughs> I love yeah. when those guys are in a room when I'm not playing. So like when I'm railing, I love watching those guys. But if I'm at the table with them, I, I don't, I don't want to be at the table with them. The, the, the way yeah. I look at it is – Poker is a zero-sum game, so every person in the room that has any sort of competence, like every good player I see, I see them as, you know, a certain amount of dollars coming out of my pocket, and I don't want to see that. I want to see right. nothing but recreational players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a, that's a that's great right. philosophy, I think, yeah. So yeah. that's – I, I guess uh, one, of the, one of the questions I, I kept keep forgetting to ask you in this thing is, is where are you geographically right now? Because um, I know you move around a lot. Okay, I'm glad you asked that because this <laughs> is probably going to be the biggest thing I'm going to uh, say on the podcast, and this is like an exclusive. So okay. I went, so I was in Vegas for the summer, and I went back to Atlanta um, after the summer for the, um, I went to North Carolina for the um, circuit event in Cherokee, which is where the global poker championship was that I, that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards I went to Atlanta and, you know, just hung out with family and friends for a while. But when I came to Vegas this summer, I came with the plan of moving out to the West coast. So when mm-hmm. I went back, that was basically just a work trip to go to Cherokee. And afterwards uh-huh. I drove back to Vegas. So okay. I'm back in, so I was back in Vegas last week and I was looking for a new office in Vegas, because mm-hmm. we didn't talk about that earlier, but in in addition to living in a van, I also would rent like a small office um, in town. I had one in Atlanta that I paid like 200 bucks a month for. And during the summer in Vegas, I had one for 200 bucks a month, but it turned out I didn't like that one. So when I came back this time, I was looking for another one and um. I was going to get another office, but somehow I don't even know how this came up, but somehow I realized that there was like um, cheap hotel rooms in Vegas. And so I was searching online online and I learned about this place a little bit south of Vegas called Laughlin, I think is the name of it. And they got like twenty dollar hotel rooms down here. Huh. So wow. it's like, it's like a little bit over an hour trip from Vegas. So I drove from Vegas to Laughlin, which is where I am now. And I mm. booked, you know, a nice room in a like hotel resort connected to a casino for like 20 bucks during the week. So like, wow. Uh, I booked for next week, Sunday through Thursday Five days, $92, including all fees. <laughs> That's great. Now, That's the, crazy. The weekends are a little bit more, but the weekends are still only like 40, maybe 50 bucks. And mm-hmm. so being here, and, and it's right next to the Colorado River, so you got like a little distraction from the fact that you're in a desert. And it's like on the exact border between Nevada and Arizona. So like Uh um, if you want to play on a poker site that you're not capable of playing in in Vegas and Nevada because of the um, geolocation restrictions, uh, you can just literally take a two minute drive across the border to Arizona and you're good to go. And like there's so (laughs) many there's so many like pluses to being in this area that I think I may just stay here. And so with $92 for $5, I mean, for five days, I may not even do the van thing anymore. So this may be, this may be the, uh, the one place that could convince me to give up the homeless poker player thing. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah. That is a big that is a big announcement from uh, from the guy who has homeless poker player on his <laughs> Twitter profile. Yeah, so I gotta change all that stuff now. But yeah, wow. like, like this is this is a pretty nice room for like next to nothing. I'm thinking like, man, I could see myself living here. Now I could pay for the weekends also, but uh, I'll still live in the van on the weekends because there's a couple of tournaments in Vegas that I like playing on the weekend. So my mm-hmm. plan is just to stay here Sunday through um, Friday morning and then yeah. leave the hotel on Friday, drive like the 75 minutes to Vegas and play the tournaments there on Friday and Saturday and sleeping on my sleeping in my van um, in Vegas on those days. And then when it's time to grind Sundays again, the next day, drive back down here and just stay for the next five days. So I think that's going to be my plan going forward. Wow. So nice. you, are you playing tournaments during the week time? Are you playing online or are you playing tournaments at that casino that's next to you in Laughlin? Um, I'm playing online during the weeks. Okay. There, there is um, some small tournaments here. Maybe like maybe their big one is like 100 bucks, But if it's a $100 tournament in a place like this, they probably rake in $30 out of it. So I won't be playing yeah. that. But, uh-huh. yeah, right. but I will be playing uh, online from here. And mm-hmm. also... Um, um, in Vegas on Fridays and Saturdays. So this is kind of like a reversal of to what I of what I was doing before I did the van when I was living in the hotel. But it's yeah. even che- it's it's cheaper than the ones than the extended stays I lived in in Atlanta, and it's also ten times nicer. I'll say this hotel room is probably similar to like the Orleans or Gold Coast, if you guys are familiar with those rooms. So it's not top okay. of the, but it's not top of the line, but for $20, actually the deal that I got for next week is like $18 all inclusive, no, no resort fee taxes. Everything's wow. included for $18 in a place this nice. I'm never leaving. I'm never leaving. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. You're like, um, can I just book for life? Yeah. For $18? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's, like to, to be honest, there's you know my my wife and I is pretty likely we'll be in Vegas come like maybe February March kind of time after we've done a couple of months in Europe. So it is absolutely possible that I will join you at that same hotel in in yeah. uh, in February or March time. To be honest, having uh, having heard all of that, like because a place to stay in or near Vegas for eighteen bucks a night is too diff- too uh, too cheap to pass up. I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah. No doubt. It's the place to be. <laughs> so we'll go with we'll go with semi homeless poker semi, player. Semi semi homeless <laughs> poker player. I like that. <laughs> um, one thing I did want to get into with you a little bit, uh, it, it, because it's something that I've always kind of been, I guess, passionate about. Is uh, I, I've always argued that poker players are very short sighted in terms of um, looking for opportunities to make money and revenue outside of the actual poker table. Um, and along with that sort of creating a brand for yourself and, you know, marketing yourself, so to speak. And you seem to have sort of mastered that. I mean, you have, you know, we won't obviously go into any like details about how much you're making, but you have uh, relationships where you're writing articles for people, you're doing things for TPE, you do, you know, all these different sort of side jobs, if you will, but it still allows you to be in and around poker all the time. Was that like a conscious effort that you made? Like, I, like I want to make money in the poker industry, especially because I don't even like playing tournaments that much. Yeah, it's, it's like, I think that is essential to doing this long term, especially if you are um, not like, if you don't have a super conservative bankroll management strategy, which I don't for the most part nowadays, um, I think the variance in poker is so high that if you just try to live off of tournament poker income alone, that's going to be tough to do, especially live tournaments where you don't get like a massive sample size and all the, um, the the rake is obviously a lot um, higher live as well and travel expenses and all that stuff. It just seems pretty much impossible. So in order for me to maintain my lifestyle, I do need to get variance free income outside of actually playing. And like you mentioned, um, I, I consider myself like when people ask me what I do for a living, I say I'm a writer because the majority of my income comes from that as opposed to um, playing. So writing, Twitch, I'm actually 
uh, one of the things I was looking to do as a plan B, which is why I came out to the West Coast, is do more substitute teaching, which is something mm-hmm. I did in Vegas. I mean, in Atlanta, but um, in Portland, they pay subs, basically what I made as a full-time teacher in Georgia. So I can make more money out here subbing. So my plan is to go up to Portland and get a job as a substitute teacher within the next month or so, hopefully. I'm waiting on them to call me back. I've already submitted the application. And if that goes through, then I'll go up there and sub whenever I need to kind of get a boost to my bankroll. And and if things are going well, then I just won't take any subbing assignments. Like I want a plan B that is flexible in, in that sense. But as far as like, the poker related non playing income. Yeah. I think that's important too. um, coaching. I've done some coaching, um, uh, videos, um, uh, for tournament poker edge. There was a, I think I got two videos I've done on the site. So like, yeah, any, anything you can do outside of playing, I think you should do it. And, and you are one of the people that I think, um, uh, are probably, um, uh, most, helpful to me in terms of like, you know, watching you where you're like, you're really big into marketing and, and, and all this stuff. So that, that stuff helps me and, and other people should um, take advantage of that as well. Like branding, mm-hmm. marketing, like all that stuff is so key. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's still amazing to me how few people do it. I don't know if it's just because maybe poker, maybe money came relatively easy early on in poker. Um, and so they just never thought it was going to be necessary. But man, as as the games get tougher and tougher, um, I just feel like, like you said, you have to have sort of a plan B. Yeah, and, and it doesn't mean like a plan B as in, well, if I have to quit poker, I'll do this. <laughs> it's just <laughs> here's really great, like you said, a perfect variance-free income while I also grind poker. Right. Just side. don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's fun. And it's fun. Like it's fun. Like Twitch. Like growing a Twitch audience. Like it's fun. And so one of the reasons we got into poker is because it's fun. So just find that same fun and the um, other aspects of the game outside of playing. Yep. Well said. Sounds good, man. Very cool. Any other questions from you, Matt? No, I think we covered a lot of the, the, the best stuff. I think we, we covered a lot of stuff I wanted to chat about. Certainly, I think it's really cool for people to get an insight into someone who does the poker lifestyle very differently to, to most. And, and I think there's a lot that, that people listening to this can learn from Carlos's uh, approach to life. So, yeah, it's been it's been great. Cool. Uh, for everybody out there listening, make sure uh, you follow uh, Carlos on Twitter. It's at Hip Hop 101 Trivia. I think I got that correct. Yes. Um, so follow him there. You can also check out his uh, his Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash Carlos Welch. Um, am I forgetting to plug anything? I think that's most of it, yeah, right? That, that's, that's most of it. Um, okay. Twitch.tv slash Carlos Welch, a.k.a. the semi-homeless poker player. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I hope I get a credit. Now. <laughs> there needs to be an asterisk that says, this was coined by Derek. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Carlos, thanks a lot, man. It's always good, uh, good to talk to you. We got to hang out a lot in Vegas this summer, and I, uh, as I said on Facebook the other day, I, I've, I've missed hanging out with you. So it was nice to get to do it for an hour. Yeah, this is real cool, man. Well, we look forward to having you on again someday. Hey, um, and uh, November, yep. Cherokee in November. Don't miss it this time. Ah, uh, yes, this time I should be there. Although I'm actually going out to Vegas uh, in in mid November, so I don't know if you'll still be there, but we might need to uh, connect if you are. Okay. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks uh, Thanks again, Carlos. Thank you uh, to my co-host, Matt. Thank and thanks to everybody out there for listening. And we'll see you back here again very soon on Mid-Stake Slip.
against the world.